everyone, welcome back to the left page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, and writer. And I am joined, as always, by my lovely friend, so- political scientist, and co-host, Leon. Welcome. Hey Frank, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm I'm excited for this one. This is a weird one. I say, as if we don't do a lot of weird shit, which is great. No, we're totally normal, very mainstream. <laughs> we wish, not really. <laughs> so today we are joined by a lovely and incredible guest who's been to our podcast verse before, but not to this one. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the left page, Kate. Hi. How are you? We're good. We're happy to have you on board. You might recognize Same. Kate from the Crimes of the Future episode, where I wasn't because I'm too squeamish. Uh, but it's great. <laughs> Listen to it. I hope my mic sounds fine. The The first time we were talking with Kate was also the first time I was using Zencaster, and I did the wrong uh, mic- uh, microphone settings. So I hope I don't cut Oops. out all over the place this time. <laughs> right. no, anyway, it's fine. People yeah. like it. It turned out great. It's fine. Don't worry. But uh, it slightly bothers me still. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. Um, so yeah, we have Kate again. Yay. 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 <laughs> so happy Thank to be here. Thank you for coming on again, Kate. Yeah. I love to talk about media. <laughs> media. Yes, and literature. And today we're talking about... The novel. (laughs) (laughs) The novel, The Baudelaire Fractal, (laughs) by Lisa Robertson. Woo! Yeah, so I wanted to talk about this book. I heard about it on the um, Bisser Brooklyn Institute for Social Research podcast. And I was like, all right, well, they recommended it. I'm sure it's great. So I thought it would be, and and I'm an artist and, you know, it's a book about a person or a girl uh, really coming into being an author and an artist. And, um, you know, artists are all kind of narcissistic and we love to read about the artist process. (laughs) (laughs) So I never get tired of it. Yeah, it's it, it's an it's a fascinating book about. Um, well, it has a main selling point, but generally speaking, it's about this this main character narrator of Hazel Brown and her her life experiences and her learning and her growing and in, in every sense of the word as a she dandy, which I think is how <laughs> she describes herself. And it's a uh, it's a lovely image. And in what she ends up becoming and conforming into and creating this uh, fractal Baudelaire, this image of Baudelaire, which she creates, becomes, renovates. Uh, and we'll, we'll get on to that and what, what the title even means. Um, li- literature majors and friends could complain to me because, you know, you start with the title, blah, blah, blah. But in, in this case, it's, uh, ooh, that, that would be a greater challenge. So we'll get there later, maybe. Uh- <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love the idea of like the she dandy because I think it's not explored very often. You know, I think that we immediately think of, you know, some like well-appointed man, like, you know, wandering the city. And um, it's, you know, just sort of materially 
more difficult for women to be, you know, this sort of like disconnected person with no, you know, no uh, dependence. And um, Hazel really is this like very solo creature you know she moves to paris and she she loves to live in like anonymous hotel rooms and um like top floors of kind of like you know crummy apartments that (laughs) you know just like like i she spends a lot of time really sort of like romanticizing that like early artist struggle you know where you like don't have a ton of money there's this one part where she talks about i think she's staying in someone's house and like the the landlord brings her this like incredible breakfast every morning and she eats half of it and then like puts the rest of it on like her windowsill to stay cool (laughs) and then like eats the rest of it for lunch and dinner which is like you know i know a lot of it is like romanticizing the poverty of being an artist but it's it's easy to fall for for sure oh yeah 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 i do feel that's like a very interesting point and once again it's like all interesting points it doesn't it has so many ways that you can approach it from and nowadays i uh once again you're romanticizing is uh one thing for me and then there's the mm-hmm. whole dimension of like essentially rich people co-opting that sense of romanticism. Yeah. And once again, if you went through it yourself and are like lower class and what have you and what not, um, or whatever terminology you think I should have used, um, it's like, that's, that's one thing because that's your own experience and you're allowed to be, um, who, uh, you're allowed to be transcendental about it. Let's just say that. And, yeah. <laughs> but then there are a bunch of like very rich uh, people who's like, or well, Kids are very rich people who then pretended to be poor and in order mm-hmm. to like fabricate this, uh, like I believe, I'm so sorry to talk about all this, this guy of all people, but fucking Ed Sheeran of all people, like it <laughs> pretends to be like, like this poor couch surfing guy, but yeah. his, his parents are very rich. So it's wow. like, you know, there, there's hmm. this co-opting going, well, there was no need for him to couch surf. Let's just say that. And yeah. Like, but th- this is a thing you can like you don't you don't have to talk about Ed Sheeran, but that's the first one that came to mind yeah. for some fucking reason. <laughs> but, just, uh, it just makes me think of um, yeah, everyone go listen to "Common People" by Pulp, <laughs> and that's yeah. like a perfect song about people pretending to be poor because they think it's cool. Yeah, and there's like this uh, <laughs> great reduction in like um, artists who have a non. Uh, artists with a working class background there's like a lot less of them nowadays yes. and this is this has been declining line for reasons um we, you're probably if you're listening to this podcast you're probably already aware of those <laughs> reasons but yeah once again uh art being in the hands of like uh people from a certain class any class for that matter i think if you want to be that broad about it is maybe not great for <laughs> other reasons uh, so yeah, that's that's something that I'm definitely like very worried about. So that's the politically correct disclaimer. Uh, we can uh, <laughs> now move on and <laughs> talk about the rest of the uh, book. Yeah, that's an interesting yeah. thing that this book deals with. Yeah, I'll use that as a segue uh, to pull us into what uh, one of the things that Hazel always is always trying to do, which is trying to incorporate art into herself and herself into art. 
and what that role relationship position is. And I think generally speaking, she always wants it to be antagonistic or destructive towards that idea mm-hmm. of art established. And I, th- I think that's a, a great starting point because, uh, well, as she puts it frequently and always rightfully, I think, uh, there is no space in art for the girl, which is the image that she, she creates, she develops, uh, because in, in order to express this lack of uh, subject or, or not this lack of subject, but this lack of, I don't want to put it as permission, but this uh, uh, intentional exclusion of womanhood, girlhood, and in this case, she uses this simple form of the girl to to express this general exclusion in, in art. And, you know, we obviously take it beyond, but to keep it to this focus of, well, are you allowed to be uh, to be an artist, to be a, a creator, to, to do this, or to be a poet, to be a writer, and how she's always tearing that? It, it's always with, I don't know, <laughs> the metaphorical image is, going with claws at silk, like just tearing it all <laughs> apart and trying to rip it open and, and trying to dive into that and in into words, into meaning, into writing. And but I think that's a very positive relationship towards established traditional art, really. Yeah. I love um when she talks about uh there's like a part of the book where she talks about destroying art. And yeah, <laughs> with claws at silk um like uh you know railing against like docility and she says like the little punishments and constraints of girlhood the intense violence and violations of adolescence the roughly incised undying shame of female maturity and fungibility and i think that's like i feel that uh you know very deeply i think you know that we see i mean i don't think this is so much the case anymore but i think like you know you you think of the figure of the artist as this like untethered hero you know like um like a sort of spiritual figure you know, you never really think about like when they get home from work, like, do they have to make dinner? <laughs> you know, do they have kids? What any of those things? Um, you know, and I think that that image of the artist is like completely has mostly been completely unavailable to women because women are just sort of societally tethered to, you know, to dependents or you know, to their parents or expected to do certain things. And like, she just is like, that is not what I am doing. I am going to be in this like weird hotel room and relish it. And that's like very exciting. I think it starts with the, with the simple point that like she, she's single. She wants to be a bachelor and have these various Mm -hmm. trysts and how, you know, even traditionally that's like, oh, but, but you need to start a family. You need to, uh, blah, blah. And it's like, nah, I'm just, I'm just gonna go. Bye. Want to do my thing? And that, from the like, it starts there, and it continues to develop and and enhance in a variety of different ways. But I think, like, where do these breaks happen from these traditional images? And mm-hmm. she does it right from the start, and that her exploration and her 
artistic exploration via these romantic or sexual twists uh, is a fascinating way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. And I think that um, it reminds me a lot of this idea that um, within like social science is summarized in the idea that the default human is a man and that the women comes is like the second option. It's like the deviation from that. But some people argue that's biblical. I, I don't know. I don't necessarily want to go that route, but it's <laughs> a, as, once again, yeah, sure. It might stem from that, but that's the, how it is, has been maintained over these years is not necessarily biblical in my humble opinion. And once again, yeah, I think that that is the source or like as much as there is a focal point of this, I think that is one of the source or sources of like uh, women, women being tethered to the, uh, so, the social systems and so forth and so on. And I think that this is uh, even, <laughs> even though I had difficulty navigating the book, I think it will always be worth or uh, I think writing books like these is always worth because once again, like I've said uh, previously to Frank and Kate, like I always support women being weird little guys. Like I think everyone <laughs> is allowed to be, you know, like and once again, men have had, I don't know how many, a thousand million, whatever, uh, times 20, like amount of coming of age books of, I don't know, of like self-discovery books. But, uh, <laughs> it ties into this notion that you guys were talking about, uh, about like dandyism and this being, mm-hmm. you, uh, you know, you cannot imagine it's almost difficult to uh, to imagine a, a woman dandy because once again, <laughs> and this once again, I'm so sorry, I will end here. Don't worry. Um, it ties into <laughs> this idea that for some reason it's allowed to say that, oh, uh, women in fantasy, we talked about this on, well, I talked about this multiple times already. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But uh, on Crimes of the Future with Kate as well, like women in fantasy are unrealistic because uh, now all of a sudden, we have to adhere to this. Uh, oh, it has to be medieval inspired, and therefore women are allowed to do anything. And like, so women in fantasy right. doing stuff is unrealistic because that would not be accepted anyway. My favorite dragon is anyway. So, like, that's <laughs> and so, so forth and so on. And so, I think it's very important to create this perception, even though it is not realistic. But maybe precisely because it is not realistic, I think it is useful to create this perception of women dandies and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, th- that's what I liked about the book as well. One of the things that's really interesting in the book that's I think in stark contrast to like the male dandy is that she does talk about her work and like she d- she works kind of sporadically. Um, like it sounds like she does a lot of like domestic labor and tailoring and sewing, um, like later on in her life. And then, like, saves up all the money and then kind of goes on these little, like, hotel excursions for a while, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. But um, but she talks a lot about how she becomes, when she does the domestic labor, she, like, becomes, and I loved this, the assemblage known as wife. You know, that the wife's role in a bourgeois household is incredibly vast and you cannot do it as one person. And so in, you know, in these households, there's maids, there's seamstresses, there's cooks, there's, you know, all sorts of hands, sort of invisible hands that are helping. And she becomes that, that character, like one of, 
one of the like the blob that is a wife <laughs> um you know and i i think that's interesting because i feel like a book about the he dandy like wouldn't necessarily feel like it needed to talk about that oh yeah you know and i i appreciate that this book is like let me get real with you this is also what i'm doing it's like at this time point in time and once again as an, as an outsider i'm just i'm just wondering here i think that there's a lot of interesting debates about how to channel and depict women's rage at like both history and contemporary issues and once again i'm not taking part of it i'm just observing but as, as someone who isn't mm-hmm. a woman obviously but i do find it very interesting and once again um i don't want to use the word worrying because that sounds condescending it is just i want the best for them and that's i hope that can just be interpreted as that but it's like um i yeah like this infighting on how should we depict this how should we depict that it's maybe is very well necessary because once again we we need some kind of friction or conflict in order to move past certain things but it's like yeah i find this a very interesting addition to that spectrum i guess if i can call it that yeah once again i don't necessarily want to get into all the different ways that I've seen this rage channeled, mainly because mm-hmm. I don't think it is for me to get into. But it's, um, but yeah, anyway, it's very interesting. Please, Frank, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I think it ties into what, what the book is doing, because throughout all that, it is still about a very personal experience. Like, yes, there are analysis and, and criticisms that are wide-ranging. Like, I, that about the, 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 the assemblage of wife is... Uh, such an incredible political anal- social political yes. analysis like yes. really like that is holy shit that's good um <laughs> I just I just needed to say it uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in, in spite of all that it's still very directed into what she's doing what she's trying to explore because at the end of the day what she's trying to do through all that is write is create these artistic mm-hmm. expressions and in this challenging of art. So yeah, I, I, it's just very, I think it depends on the focus of the book. And this one is definitely one that is like, okay, but how about this experience? And it, it sort of adds or exists as a contribution to that via it being unique or significant on its own. That's like, yeah, it doesn't need to be a specific experience or a specific action or a specific role. I think it's, uh, you you put it best, Leon. It's uh, uh, women being weird little guys. Um, and this <laughs> I really is very love that. Much the case. Yeah, yeah, I really well, love that. Yeah, well, it's mainly within the contrast to the, uh, go on a little just just to make it a bit more clear to people who don't know me as well. It's it's mainly like what I said before that as well. It's men have been allowed to be. Oh, I, Christ, I don't even know where to start on that front, to be honest. Um, men have, allowed, have been given all the space, room to do things that I don't think people, no matter what their gender might be, uh, should be allowed to do and have been forgiving, have been redeemed, have been, I don't know, sanitized and so forth and so on, whatever term you think I should use. Um, it has been, once again, men have been permitted every access tenfold. And I think, once again, women are allowed to do that as well. So Weird Little Guys is this, I don't know, that quasi-internet speech for, like, just allowing them, uh, allowing to explore themselves in, once again, 
like even in like this erotic sense that this book talks about a little bit is is has always been once again has been made uh, must be made digestible for men and this book does in my humble opinion uh vehemently not adhere to that idea i like this very much as a meditation or a contemplation on like sexuality from a very deeply personal point of view if that's if, i don't know if that's the right angle for it but uh, once again, yeah, I think that has been a very interesting uh, development. And that's what I mean with weird little guys. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah th this book reminded me a lot. And it's like in a different perspective, a different angle of a book, which I've done an episode about, which you can listen to if you like on, on the podcast, uh, which is Jenny Hval's Girls Against God. Oh, yeah. It, it really reminded me of that with very different perspectives and angles. That one is um, a lot more intense. Uh, this one is a lot more exploratory, I think. Um, which, again, they're, they're just different. Not, one's not necessarily better or worse than the other. Uh, but they go after different things. And there are a lot of points of similarity, I think. And this necessary and significant exploration of of this weirdness, this, this perceived weirdness, this perceived strangeness of, you know, just being a she-dandy. And, you know, it's like, oh, she's having these sexual twists. And it's like, if um, if it was a a, a male dandy, you're like probably no no one would have batted an eye. But in this case, like she draws attention. It's like yeah, I know this. What I was doing, whatever. And it's like it's fine. And of course, it's fine. But it's it wouldn't necessarily be that that kind of optics because because you know oppression, uh, misogynism, misogyny, and all that. But she, I think what is significant is that she carves out that space. She tears that space open. It's like, yes, I am the Sheeta in the end, uh, which ties into one of the points that she indeed becomes the author of uh, <laughs> Charles Baudelaire's entire body of work. Uh, she did not live and she is not Baudelaire. Uh, so it's not our some kind of reincarnation, of, not, none of that. But she is the author. And she knows the difference. Exactly. Yeah, should we talk about Baudelaire? Yes. Since, yes. Yeah. I really. I'm not going to so, start. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not. Yeah. It's funny because she, like myself, you know, she's like, I'm. I don't know if I'm ever, if I, am even a huge fan of Baudelaire. He just like became part of me, or like his work became part of me. He didn't. So I read an interview with the author, and she said it was. It was an actual thing that happened to her. She was like writing all night. And then she kind of had this weird out of body experience where she had this sense that she had written all of Baudelaire's works. Um, and then also she just, okay. So is there, there's an interview where she mentions the Borges short story. Yes. Um, Cause it gets, it gets mentioned a lot, I think, with this with reviews of the book. Yeah. But um yeah, so there's like sort of direct reference to uh Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote, uh by uh Borges. And I read I read a little bit of it. I didn't get to finish it. Um, but I thought there it was really interesting the way he talks about it and the way she talks about sort of inhabiting this the the work of a an author and like in Pierre Menard I thought it was so like this 
this quote was so important to me. Uh, to be in some way Cervantes and reach the Quixote seemed less arduous to him and consequently less interesting than to go on being Pierre Menard and reach the Quixote through the experiences of Pierre Menard. Um, and like, that's what happened to her. Like she's in completely experiencing being Hazel Brown. She doesn't think that she's Baudelaire. She doesn't want to be Baudelaire. You know, I think she recognizes that there's some things about Baudelaire that are unsavory that she doesn't want to inhabit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But has reached this sort of strange, more interesting um, point where she gets to Baudelaire through her. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. So I wish this notion was explored a little bit more because once again, this notion is so interesting and deep. You can, you can make a book out of this. So yes. it's like, <laughs> and, and it's fine that she doesn't. It's just, I was kind of, I, I thought it was really interesting. And it, it started off with telling you this premise. And I was like, Oh, hmm, this is promising. And what I got was fundamentally different or uh, variating, I should say. And that's totally fine. Two things. And like, once again, so I wish that was more elaborated upon because once again, I think that's very interesting. And I think it's very interesting because when we have been talking about um, this idea that I'm going to, what she said in an interview about, hey, uh, I uh, I experienced this outside body experience that I uh, I wrote Baudelaire's work. Um is, once again, very interesting from a feminist point of view, because uh, a century ago, that would have gotten you locked up as a woman. And if a man would have done this, it would have been different, probably, if it's a man of standing, that is, at least. And so <laughs> I find that very... Um, it has a liberatory potential, let's just say that. It has... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm just going to stop there. I think it's very interesting. I, I think, like, we mentioned this before we started recording, but the book, the, the selling point of the book is that, and it, it is a a significant point of the book, but the book is a lot more than that. And it's focused on a lot more subjects and questions as we've been talking at the start than just this. So it may have been a marketing thing to put this much focus on the authorship question because I I had a similar experience because, you know, I I was familiar with the short story. It's like, oh, so this is what we're going. It's like, yes. And (laughs) what what I came out with was a really interesting experience and a, a great book. And looking at the whole, it kind of... Okay, so uh, it's exactly as Kate said about the story, that uh, Hazel, via her own experiences, reaches the authorship of Baudelaire. And that's what Pierre Menard does. And when you look at the book as a whole, you eventually realize that. But it's really difficult to, to approach that and to get to that point during that reading because that connection isn't really established um, in the short story. We're not following Pierre Menard. We are following the narrator of Borges uh, talking about Pierre Menard, who is, has passed away. And in it, the, the story mentions that Menard had a lot of you know drafts and distro- notes that he made before he rewrote parts of the Quixote, uh, but he burned them all. And in this case, it's almost <laughs> as if we see that entire process with Hazel of her become her writings her her creations her destroyings her explorations and to reach that authorship to me what i what i really would have wanted was the exploration of what next what now okay you have this authorship so what do you do with it menard wanted to rewrite the entirety of the quixote and but what is hazel going to do 
or what is Hazel doing? And we don't see that. Um, I think for me, that's personally where I was. Um, I, I, I'm going to say it <laughs> slightly disappointed. I, I wanted that. But I, I still think that it is an interesting exploration. I think that M- Menar is a crucial story to uh, to the Baudelaire fractal. or fract- Yeah, the Baudelaire fractal, uh, without shadow of a doubt. And the more you think about it, the more it, it sort of connects. Uh, I, I I was reading a couple of reviews before I heard, and one of them said that there's it has nothing to do with that. And I was like, no, you, you're you're talking out of your ass. It definitely does. <laughs> uh, it is a <laughs> fundamental element, even if the book does more than that. Like you can't have this book without it, because it it kind of ends up being like this focal point where the book ends uh, with 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 that authorship. But what I wanted to draw very quickly on that liberatory potential is that Borges is a really interesting case for that um, exploration of like beyond copyright and kind of stuff because, you know, he, he's literally advocating for a, a, an author rewriting the entirety of a work and have that <laughs> be a separate thing. So this kind of rewritings and, and references and stuff um, was definitely something that he would have been in favor of. And that, have, that has been done. Uh, unfortunately, the current estate holder of the Borges uh, estate really uh, is uh, was very litigious against any kind of rewritings of Borges. That's too bad. Yeah, it's it's sad which Borges would have been definitely in favor of, but yeah. you know it's, uh, it's kind of sad and I think in this case with Hazel doing that and especially with her doing it or with a, a, a male author is like, yeah, no, I, I have this authorship now and how much it grows and inflates and, you know, the, the central figure of Jenny Duval, which uh, explodes in the text, I think, in a really good way. But yeah, I, I think as much as I would have liked more about that question of the authorship and this connection with Pierre Menard, um, what we do get is still a good connection and it still builds up well from that. It's just not just not in the way that the marketing would have you believe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I wonder how, like, like we said, like how much of that was the marketing of a book, which is like, you know, unfortunately a thing that has to happen with, yeah. uh, you know, with novels that they have to have an elevator pitch for a novel. And that sounds like a really good elevator pitch. <laughs> You yeah, I can't argue with that. <laughs> it's total. It, it told all of us because we hadn't read exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I heard about this book. It sounds really wild, <laughs> and it what it is wild. Um, yeah, it's kind of like when, uh, yeah, when an artist names a painting and it just like doesn't quite work, or you know, it's like it sort of. Uh, I mean, this is all subjective, of course, but it like betrays the painting in a way or something. And you're like, yeah. oh, oh, I hate that title, <laughs> you know. Um, but actually, speaking of painting, she does spend a, a lot of time like concentrating on and describing paintings of Baudelaire um, and, mm-hmm. and other other people like of his era as well. But um, I really appreciated how beautifully and like thoughtfully she described the paintings and especially um, really concentrated on Baudelaire's lover, Jean Duval. He was um, 
a woman, but also a woman of color and was like literally erased from um, one of the, from, from Corbet's painting of Baudelaire. She had been kind of like leaning over him and, it, and at one point, and it, she talks about kind of like, if you didn't know to look for it, you wouldn't know it was there, but she saw sort of like the, the ghosted figure of Jean Duval, the lover. Um, and I thought that was really beautiful and poignant, you know, that she like connected with this person. It reminded me of, uh, there's a book called Alias Olympia by Eunice Lipton about Victorine Moral, who is um, Manet's model. Um, and she's also been not visually erased from history, obviously, because she's his model and is in his most famous paintings, but n- unnamed. Um, and, you know, we just see her as this nude figure. We don't know anything about her. There's a lot of assumptions with I'm pro sex work, but a lot of assumptions about models at that time that they were, you know, that they're prostitutes and so and thus don't need to be named um or given a history so i really appreciate how much time she spent um thinking about jean definitely yeah i I think she is like the the major the major other character in that book of jean duval Mm -hmm. uh she is like this this constantly sought out reference uh connection connecting point because she you know she has well, there there are a handful of others, but she has very few people to connect with because she's trying to create these ruptures and these breaking points. And she, you know, she doesn't have those references, or she is not having a good time finding those references. And she finds it in this poignant figure and this erased image of Gendeval and her significance as being present and present via throughout Baudelaire's life, but also shadowed a, a great deal of the time. So it's, um, I, I feel like that is one of the most, It's. I feel like I've been saying this a lot, one of the most significant aspects and one of the most beautiful, really, which is this this recuperation of her, of Jeanne Duval. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. It reminds me a little bit of a Dutch French uh, French spy who was a woman called Matahari, and she mm-hmm. um, was like active uh, in clandestine activities and did a lot of porn stuff. But mainly, people remind her as a sexualized icon. Uh, for mm-hmm. those who are interested in it, I uh, I'm not going to talk about it a lot here because once again, we kind of kind of already covered this point. Um, just want to like uh, add this on top of this. Um, you could go ahead and Google her. her it's, it's a fascinating story. And um, yeah, anyway, it, it reminds me a lot of that because once again, she's only remembered as a sensationalized, uh, sensationalized, sexualized person with like little to no agency uh, of her own, which is uh, uh, credited to her if you like talk about her spy activity and her clandestine activities. And well, anyway. Long story short, that 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 that's such a thing. Like we can, I'm pretty sure we can fill a whole podcast just talking about women who have been like <laughs> fucked over by history. Well, many yeah. men in that and the classism in general, and uh, patriarchal systems in general, and so forth and so on. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's very and like depoliticized for sure. You know, like that they didn't. Yeah. You know, like 
Marilyn Monroe is the communist, <laughs> you know, like, but we just want to see her as a bombshell. You could be both. Yeah, the, <laughs> um, I believe she was Yay. Jewish as well. And that's also taken away from her. Yeah. Yeah. And she, um, which I, I learned not that long ago. And I remember that like um, her family made like a push for her to be uh, buried in a Jewish cemetery. And her husband at the time was like, no. And, and then the graveyard spots behind uh, 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 surrounding Marilyn Monroe's grave were auctioned off to men so they can, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you Ew, can, that's yeah. disgusting. Yeah, oh. No, but imagine being sexualized into death. Oh. Just, just to, to, I'm so sorry to inflict this upon you, Kate. My apologies. But it's... Um, <laughs> it's that's so yeah, gross. I, yeah, but... To, I would just like to take a moment and think of how, indeed, how gross it is, and like how how bad the system and perspective is that allows women to be sexualized posthumously. <laughs> yeah. Like, after death, it continues like that. For some reason, that just boggles my like. I'm not surprised, but I am. But I'm not surprised, but I am. It's I don't know. That's uh, yeah, like you said, it's so gross, and yeah. I think that's a very good story to summarize that idea. I think system. like again, and also like you know, maybe if we had given her the chance, would have been a weird little guy. Oh yeah, <laughs> she's yeah. like oh, a definitely. you know communist, bisexual, like you know, was very interested in like always improving her acting skills on her own even though pe- I don't think people really cared you know another interesting thing about her and I, I swear I will tie this back to Baudelaire Fractal <laughs> is um, she had she had really um, horrible endometriosis and was in pain a lot um, and like really had to like put on a pretty face all the time and um that's a, I think, um, a few things that I was very, or a thing that I was very interested in in uh, the Baudelaire Fractal was um, this talk of the stain of girl of womanhood, um, which is, in you know, the uh, completely embodied like acceptance of of you know the gross or just normal things that happen when you're a woman or, you know, or when you have ovaries and a vagina. Um, Already the first mistake for not being a man, which is your fault, obviously. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, you could have been Um, born a man and you didn't. So that's on you really. Yeah. The fault human is a man. is what I'm trying to get at. That's right. Yeah. And it goes back again, I think to the idea of like, a, a dandy being like untethered. Um, if you're a she dandy, you're gonna leave stains on chairs. Like you can't be completely untethered, and um, you can't just float around. <laughs> you know, yeah. like um, a man dandy only has to overcome capitalism, and a woman dandy has to overcome capitalism and patriarchy. It's like yeah. You know. Sorry, I was interrupting you. Apologies, please. Uh... Oh no, no. Yeah, what okay. did you what did you think about the what did y'all think about the the idea of the stain? I feel like it's one of the things that I um I, I had a kind of a difficulty tracking the concept because she throws 
a few different ideas that that she ends up exploring throughout the story. And this is the one that I had the most difficulty tracking. But to me, it, it very much stood out as like, yeah, this, uh, you know, that we're we're stained, we are uh, we're, we're maculated by this. Uh, and uh, that's good, actually, because uh, th- these stains, the these are these are both a part of our existence and, you know, are a literal leaving this mark that, you know, we are here, we are here and th- we are. This is a positive change as well, that the stain is something um, very radical, I think. Um, that's mm-hmm. my general sense. And I, I liked it a lot. I just <laughs> I missed so many different things, other stuff that I was trying to track through. This is the one that I um, I was lost throughout and I, uh, I lost track of. Uh, but what I gathered, I was very much interested. Definitely. I think every tool or every element of differentiation from the desirable, namely, you should be more than a man, man is the full human. Uh, or in this case, I think it's also interesting to talk about is... There's also a stain if you're leftist, I think. Once again, I'm not saying these, these things are equal or identical. Mm-hmm. It is just like, uh, if you're far leftist and people, the, the, the good ideologies, the reasonable ideologies are having a discussion and you review yourself as a far leftist, being an anarchist, being a communist, being whatever, everyone kind of treats you like you just took a shit on the carpet. Like, oh my God, I'm like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Couldn't you just be a fascist? We can't incorporate those people. No, it's it's just like, and, and that's like, you know, it's kind of the same as like, okay, so it's not the same, but it has comparable um, mechanics, if you will. And I would like to uh, give a positive spin on this, namely that <laughs> the stainification, I guess, <laughs> um, the, the, the element of the stain can be used as a tool for solidarity. And yeah. so inadvertently, the... Mm-hmm. the disadvantage, the oppression that has been given on either leftist or woman or God forbid, a leftist woman um, is like, you know, can create a form of strength, can create solidarity, can create love and so forth and so on. And I don't know, I think that's cool. Yeah. The stainification is anti-commodification. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Know, like, it's not uh, sanitized. Um, I like what you said too, Frank, that like we are here like you're leaving a mark saying i i was here you know i think that's really um yeah it's very poignant yeah and powerful yeah yeah exactly and and i think very much in a sense that's like as much as that is both i don't know involuntary but it's also like yeah no this i know i think for me it struck like a kind of sense that it's uh I don't want to use self-image, but that's a self-affirming sense that's like, yeah, no, this, especially because this is something that I can't really control, this is even more important that, yes, I am here and I am Mm -hmm. remaining here. I'm leaving these stains and you, you, uh, you, you can find my stains and you can find where I've been in a weird sense. Uh, this, uh, I think you put it interestingly as the sense of attachment that you leave these marks and that as a, a male dandy one would just literally float around. But I, I think the the only spin I want to put on it is that it's like, <laughs> yeah, this um, this is very material, materialist. That's like, yeah, no, mm-hmm. we are connected to our material realities and that the stain is the connection between body and 
reality existence and the world around us. So Absolutely. the state is materialism. Hurrah. I love it. Oh my God. Wow. We got there. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. And I think that um, I would say it's not that like the male is floating around and untethered. It's that the like sort of the concept of the dandy as male is, you know, that that that's the ideal of it. Not that it's actually not that it's reality. Um, oh, yeah. Because there are lots of. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of working class queer men of color disabled men um and obviously many people who are non-binary who are leaving their stains behind as uh i I love also she says um it's part loss part object so i think that yeah that's like you know it came from her it's part it was part of her and now it's like part of something else. Like it's out in the world and now it's an object. So it's really interesting that you said that because it it sets me up to uh, what I also thought of to say, and I agree with what you guys said 100%, by the way. I just couldn't shake the idea that, um, to go a little bit back on the whole Baudelaire setting point thing, uh, I was like, <laughs> I was going along the same tracks, sort of uh, like uh, Frank, even though I'm not that invested in Baudelaire. Um, fun side anecdote don't worry i'll get i'll I'll get to it but um just to make fun of myself a little bit as like as a young dyslexic person i always always had difficulty separating baudelaire uh, baudelaire ballard and bataille because they all sound french and sound with a b so i was like who which one of the four is the four big b's are the this one again charles pierre baudelaire oh yeah the, the, the oldest one yes okay right thank you and the one about the giant, right? Okay, yeah, okay, cool, cool. And and well, anyway, that's not the point. But, um, <laughs> but then she starts talking about uh, Walter Benjamin, and I think the stain also can be read as what Walter Benjamin talks about as the aura, and mm, or is it rather yeah. a politicification of what Walter Benjamin talks about the aura. And I think Walter Benjamin would agree or like uh, support that idea because once again, for those, uh, <laughs> it's not going to do him justice, and I'm so sorry. But uh, Walter Benjamin in like his uh, classic, um, what's it called again? Das Kunstwerk in seine alter seine technische Reproduktivität. Art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Yeah, but he's German, so I could say, I could talk to him. Good excuse. That one. And, well, you know, I like saying it if it's the original language, I like to at least. Yeah. So moving on, <laughs> in that, and this is not going to do uh, him that essay justice, but very grossly, very quickly, it's, he draws a lot of the art and stuff like that, media, whatever, into the political, into the material. And once again, I think that the aura is a very interesting concept produced by him. And I think this, there is a connection between what we call the stain and the aura in a way. And I don't know. I thought maybe, maybe you guys finally disagree. I don't know. So no, I, I love that. Gently... I didn't. I was thinking about Benjamin too, and more in terms of like concentration and distraction. But I never even thought about that as this the stain as aura. Yeah, I I, I am thinking, and this is fairly <laughs> fucking pretentious. So I'm sorry, but it, it, it's what came to if me. If there's ever a book that warrants it. Yeah, really. Let's so lean in. Really, We're leaning in. Yeah. 
It's like I I think the stain, um, or or it it might be further because there's the, the, this whole thing in semiotics about like the Hema triangle or square triangle. It's a it's a square because there are four points. Um, where there's no <laughs> one thing. It's it's opposite. It's it's negative and it's anti anti opposite. So like if there's a, such a thing as like the aura and the anti aura as this you know opposition and, and destruction oh, no. and you know. The reality mm. of capitalism. Then the stain would be the anti-anti-aura, as this kind of thing that both transforms this reality of the aura and has a, 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 an all relationship to it, but is also very much against this utter destruction and this utter banalization that the anti-aura can provoke. Not always, but in a in a vague sense that's like this. If there was a sort of, um, I don't want to say purity. But this uh, original value or this thing which was captured in these particular experiences or these particular objects, then the stain is like a an odd middle ground that recreates that idea. Um, so uh, yes, I- I'm gonna say the <laughs> the stain is the anti anti aura, <laughs> or is it the synthesis? Oh boy! <laughs> well, I'm working with I mean, four. The stain, <laughs> the stain cannot be mechanically reproduced. Exactly. It is. It, it's not reproducible. It is an original every time. <laughs> and we should note that while the stain generally speaks about a specific bodily fluid, uh, as Kate drew attention to it with uh, people of a, a variety of different genders, uh, we can definitely consider the stain as to be a variety of bodily fluids yes. to your choosing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get creative with your stains. <laughs> That's a fucking good line. um one thing uh, talking about ben humin now um there's another passage in pierre menard that talks about that i think also kind of references the like distraction versus concentration um to compose the quixote at the beginning of the 17th century was a reasonable undertaking necessary and perhaps even unavoidable at the beginning of the 20th, it's almost impossible. And I was thinking about also Robertson writing a book that really demands concentration in an era of distraction. Um, and also her all of her references are to a time of like the era of the novel and and you know, um being able to having like the ability or not having the ability to sit in front of a painting for a very long time and think about it, um, which a lot of us don't either don't do now or don't really have the capacity to do now because we are distracted all the time. <laughs> a bit of both, probably. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's always a mosaic of things that come together. It's, yes. Yeah. I I think something that's interesting about it is how the and that's one of the things that comes up in, in Menard is how how this different image of what it was this original author this original authorship and that is very much different and that it, it it's something that can be changed. I think what what is the the, the end point of the short story? Sorry to spoil it uh, <laughs> to you. <laughs> Uh, but the the last point is that like how interesting and how uh, creative then is it to read texts anachronically 
so uh, against their original creations. So how does it put like the this uh, deliberate anachronism of this of these wrong attributions and this technique of infinite application uh, leads us to peruse the Odyssey as if it was after the Aeneid and the oh, wow. uh, or to attribute to James Joyce the imitation of Christ. Uh, wouldn't that be uh, an interesting renewal of these these spiritual advices or these um, or, of these works, these continual recreations of these works and these thinkings of different ideas and different concepts, as if deliberately opposing the original times and and the present, and how how that is also a work of you know uh, <laughs> a, a new type of concentration or. or, or creating it anew is like how is it to i don't know let, let's create a random example uh to to read baudelaire as if it was written after modernity as if mm-hmm. baudelaire is a postmodern um <laughs> or as <a> post postmodern <laughs> from the 21st century how how wild is that and to throw these texts backwards how that is a, a, a new exercise of concentration and it's like a, a whole writing a reading exercise thing that's so interesting there's a lot of um i feel like that's a lot of people react to paintings that way when paintings seem out of time like every once in a while there'll be like a medieval painting that looks like it was painted in the 50s you know or like some (laughs) some just you know, sculpture that's incredibly modern, but it's from like the 1800s. And you're like, how did this happen? You know, and it's so interesting, you know, and like the first reaction is always like, this couldn't be like, this is made by a time traveler, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And sometimes how that, like, that's the thing, like these, these readings, these, these allow us new, new exercises in, in understanding is like, Okay, so so what if, yeah, what if this was indeed afterwards? How would we read this work as like being in the time which it seems to be or reading this literally out of time? Yeah. Um, in a sense, like I, I think the, the Baudelaire fractal, it's that it's, you know, it's it calls itself a novel, but to be truly Baudelarian about it, it's a poem in prose. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. It's, it's not really a novel. It's a poem in prose and that's fine. Uh, and maybe that's part of the point, but that's that's how it connects. It's not. Uh, it is definitely poetic in its creation, its uh, writing, especially its language, but it's also not written in verse. So you know, a poem in prose, which is one of the things Baudelaire did quite famously, fits quite well for it. I agree. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. I find it funny that I'm the one with the most Baudelaire experience here. Um, <laughs> I just find it entertaining. <laughs> no, I make it a point to read as little about French people as possible. Ah, always <laughs> a good move. Yeah. <laughs> Self care. That's what I call it. It's like... <laughs> I will. I, I uh, after uh, after hearing. Like Kyle talk about it, Kyle, who you, Frank, did also uh, interesting a ballad to Yeah, uh, another B one. Again, Kate is only and Kate talked about Cronenberg and Cronenberg talked about trash. So yes. <laughs> that's why I thought about ballad. 
that's the weird mind uh, worm that was going on in my brain. Makes so, perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Which, once again, I can uh, whole, um, uh, wholeheartedly recommend that episode. It's great. But, um, yeah, so you also, uh, and Tal talked a little bit about Baudelaire, about, uh, to us on our yeah. uh, Love Death Robots episode, I believe. And uh, so since then, I was like, oh, I have to check them out. Yeah, so I, I'll soon uh, get more Baudelaire experience, uh, Jean-Pierre Baudelaire. Very uh, weird little guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. Benjamin was a huge fan of Baudelaire. Like the whole text oh, yeah. talking about him and it's like, yeah, it, it's... Um, the, the book picks up on like the Baudelaire and post-Baudelaire and Baudelarian connections. So it's all... You know, in every aspect that it is separate from Baudelaire, it's still connected to Baudelaire. So yeah, it's it's Benjamin for a lot of other reasons and other ideas, but it's still connected to Baudelaire. So it's mm-hmm. the book, it, it, and I think it's 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 what we've said said and the way we we referenced and Pierre Menard does something similarly that the connection to by Menard with Quixote or with Cervantes is almost accidental. It was not his favorite. It was not his favorite writer or his favorite novice. Like, eh, something he read once and like kind of stuck with him, but not that much. Uh, but it was something that's like, how did he frame it? And I feel like Hazel would frame it exactly like that. It was an author that like, yeah, he had his relevance, whatever, but it was one that he could entirely dismiss and separate himself from, which would allow him to connect utterly with the work which I think Hazel kind of does similarly, even more mm-hmm. detached than Menah would have been with Cervantes. And in that sense, the book does the same. In every aspect that it separates itself from Baudelaire, it is also reconnecting with him. Yeah, I mean, she's in his city. She's, you know, walking the same streets, having trysts in hotel rooms, you know, taking on lovers, like... Um. Yeah, I feel it's like uh, formally very Baudelarian, you know that she's yeah. Um, she's like living the life of the weird little guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, a li- like s- less. It seems like less darkness than Baudelaire for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, like she because she seems to be really happy about her life. Um, she yeah. doesn't have a lot of she doesn't seem miserable ever really. And I mean, I know she's romanticizing her past from the present time, but definitely. I think it has like that once again ties into the aims of the work being um trying to embody liberative properties. Mm-hmm. Once again, the the liberative properties come along with being a weird little guy. And <laughs> like and so forth and so on. So I think um, because of a purposeful incorporation of those elements, I am much more lenient towards the romantification of otherwise things that I would like to see taking a little bit more serious. And yeah, well, I, we can, I, I can talk endlessly about how writers, especially within fiction, that is, um, um, circumvent the, <laughs> the downsides of capitalism because it's always... I'm so sorry to talk about this in the middle of this episode, but especially within fantasy and sci-fi, there's always like the MacGuffin, the thingamajig, the whatever the fuck that like gives them a means of production or a way to not worry about the everyday concerns of mm. commodity and finance and mm-hmm. so forth and so on. 
Um, yeah, I'll probably save that for another episode because it doesn't really fit in here. But once again, I always feel like, ah, see, see, you're secretly an anti-capitalist and be an anti-capitalist, you fucking coward. But that's that's always then like, you know, for marketability, this is then uh, scooped up and like left off somewhere else. And um, yeah, anyway, so, but, so, but because of the, the the incorporation of those elements, I think I'm a lot more tolerant for uh, romanticization of this element, of this uh, struggle, so to speak. Hmm. Um. I I think like the, the one thing that's like um I, I would have liked to see a little more about because like I um as someone who has not been to Europe and someone who is uh from a, a third world country or a developing country or whatever second world come on don't think so low of yourself <laughs> <laughs> or or whatever shit the categorization of countries that exist <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> out there. Uh, the the global south, um, the, right, the, the, yeah. those are the ones. At, at one point, I I, I, w- I would have liked to see a little, but I, I think it it kind of escapes the point, and maybe the author as well um, as, as like an endemic issue. Uh, I would have liked to see a little less of fetishizing Paris for once, just for oh, five yeah. minutes, please. Because <laughs> like yeah. yeah, it's Paris. Yeah, it's a European city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Move on, please. Please. I mean, yeah. just that, a bit. But at the same time, how do you construct the women dandy dynamic without fetishizing Paris or a London or a New York City or a what have you, you know? I like, mean, of I'm, course. I mean, yeah. maybe there is a way to do that. but. And I think as like an outsider, you know, she's like a Canadian who I'm sure grew up fetishizing paris as a aspiring writer and moved there yeah. and was like this is my dream you know and i understand that as someone who grew up doing the same thing about new york and getting there and being like this is everything um mm-hmm. Where did you gets, grow up? i grew up in connecticut so it's not far away <laughs> um i could have gone to Just new curious, york anytime i wanted yeah no it's fine but um there is that, I think, that is part of the, you know, sort of like dream of the artist that you have to get out of your stupid town and get yeah. to like where all the cool stuff is happening. Um, and like, yeah, I think because it's Paris, it's like it borders on the like annoying part of pretension. But um, yeah, I that's the only future time. of being French. Right, just just that, that's it. Um, they just think they're so great. But, you know, they don't work very often, so that's awesome. <laughs> As an American, I'm like, I would love French working benefits. That would be pretty awesome. But that's because we have none, so. <laughs> also, if they try to change them, there's at least a riot you can go. Yes, there's so of, many you know. riots. Yeah. I appreciate the f- the French are always riot ready culture. for a riot, yeah. French yeah. and Berliners always ready for a riot. <laughs> we call it the conflict model in political science. It's not inter- interesting or anything, but it's uh, French is always the generic uh, example of like name an example of the conflict model or a country that adheres to the conflict model in social uh, political social political relations, and then everyone goes for France. France, it's it's that one. It's like the easy easiest always yeah. answer for the conflict model. So it's like a, it's like a meme among political science. But that's <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, no. I 
uh, as as a Dutch person, you're always indoctrinated to go like uh, the centrist model or like the, the polder model, as we call it. It's not important, but it's like oh, well, you have to listen to a bit of this group, you have to listen to a bit of that group, and children are uh, pseudo indoctrinated by this idea. Yeah. And the older that I became, I was like, no, actually, I kind of like this French approach <laughs> to right. uh, just you know, because you know, it's just. Yeah, we don't need a marketplace of ideas. Yeah. Yeah, besides. No, sometimes. Sometimes things are bad. (laughs) Sometimes ideas are bad. (laughs) Sometimes we just need to set fire to a couple of cars. Totally. And the problem is, is in the United States, if you set fire to a couple of cars, you get charged with domestic terrorism and go to jail for the rest of your life, or you get shot. So it's it's a very different... um, culture of protest i think in paris i feel like there's some sort of i mean i'm romanticizing this very much right now but like you know oh yeah just another riot <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> but even like just the type of consciousness is important i think and just to remind people that we are left this podcast um oh, <laughs> this yeah. is um like when the uh not the current riot is happening for the uh, retirement age but the one yeah. before that where there was a union organization that like cut the electricity to the Parliament of Paris, Amazing. Uh, or the Parliament of in France, and that's like <laughs> you know, I, I United States could never, United States could never. That's all no, I'm saying. That's, that's, we couldn't. And same goes for for Dutch Parliament. It's, uh, so I'm not yeah. saying just say United uh, States. Brazil's are fucking other thirty different <laughs> cans of worms. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> wasn't going to speak for you, Bra- but it's, uh, Brazil you know, is just European... so big. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's uh, fuck. This, it's colossal, and there's just so much going on, and a lot of it is trees, though. So. Trees, mm-hmm. less and less. I we hear. should keep it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. We should. We should keep it yeah. that way. But yeah, there's a whole thing about a sort of disarming, or, or um, yeah, I'll, I'll use disarming, not literally, metaphorically. Of a more organized left into a more part party focused and electoral focused left, and how that kind of uh, I don't know kneecapped uh, a lot of like more organized elements, and you know those stronger in terms of protesting and whatnot, and uh, uh, made it easier for a lot of the far right's uh, cuts and reforms lately, uh, which are being really slowly maybe possibly pushed back right now uh not enough as they fucking should be because you know the the far right come over and you know like fuck it all up and when the the current left goes on be, is gets elected it's like no but we need to have a, a conciliatory position a transitional government no fuck off go crazy they they do much worse <laughs> go crazy the right way because there is a fucking right way um yeah <laughs> which anyway. is the left way ironically Except quite, yes, yes, obviously, quite. Um, uh, <laughs> to get back to the book and uh, yeah. a, a, a diatribe of mine, uh, there's something I put in the notes because I, I wanted to complain about this, um, and it's it's a bit about the marketing, but it's expanding that idea. I I mentioned this because um, the book uh, in the book's description, you go on an Amazon or whatever you get books. It, it mentions that the book is. Um, and the rest is accurate. Uh, part magical realism, part feminist ars poetica, part history of tailoring, part bibliophilic anthem, part love affair with 19th century painting, and so on. Um, all that is accurate, except for the first one. It's not fucking yeah. magical realism. Um, and for, for a variety of different reasons. Um, 
simply is that um, there isn't anything out of the ordinary that's happening. Like, oh, but the authorship is not, it's not, it's not, it's not even fantastic if we want to talk about it. Um, I'm just really annoyed about this thing. It's like, oh, anything slightly out of, of, of this hard definition of realism is like, oh, but this is magical realism. Sometimes <laughs> it's just the fantastic. And that's fine. I've got nothing against the fantastic and about doing the fantastic. But like this is like, oh, but this is magical realism. No, magical realism is a lot more circumscribed and a lot more focused into, you know, Latin America and quite a few... Um, at least Portuguese-speaking uh, African countries, but I think it's mm-hmm. more than just those. So we, those are more specific examples into this intertwining of different magical elements and usually the certain magical and uh, religious spiritual affiliations and connections. Not always, uh, but the best ones usually do. Uh, there, there I go, laying my preferences. But <laughs> um, God forbid you do it on your own podcast. Yeah, you can do whatever you <laughs> no. want. This is your podcast. <laughs> Huzzah! It, so it is. So it is. Um, <laughs> but in, in this case, and I think one of the reviews I said, it's like, oh, none of the Borges, Borgian uh, magical realism. And I'd go as far as like, but Borges is not a magical realist. Uh, he adheres to like the fantastic as a thing. Uh, he published uh, famously the anthology of fantastic literature, which is a variety of different short stories that Borges... Adolfo Bioy Casares and Silvino Campo retranslated. So it's their own versions. So they're different from other versions you might find, which is fascinating as well. Uh, but mm-hmm. I won't get into that detail. But the fantastic is, is a, a, a great, uh, a really interesting concept. But further than that, I would add that the Pierre Menard, which uh, she's a, a brilliant writer and author of the fantastic, and I thoroughly recommend her to both of you and anyone listening. Uh, I've, I've written about her, but a uh, Silvino Campo, which is the author that uh, Borges dedicates Pierre Menard to. So it's all connected uh, beautifully for, for my benefit. And she writes a deal about the fantastic and in terrifying ways. Generally, they're scary. Uh, but Pierre Menard is not a magical realist nor a fantastic story. It's deeply grounded and that's why I kind of called it hyperrealist at one point. It's like, okay, so you want to, what, which is the, the process that Menard goes through and the one that Hazel goes through in an indirect way uh, or in an unconscious way, which one she didn't realize. But is this total recreation of the what led to these writings? So how, how does Hazel Brown become author of the entirety of Baudelaire's work being Hazel Brown, how does Pierre Menard becomes the author of Quixote, still remaining Pierre Menard, and the the choices, the consequences, the studies, the writings, which which lead to those results, and these are these are very much grounded into you know Hazel's entire story, which is this this experience of the she dandy, and which implies a great deal of frustration in her writing, a great deal of experimentation, a great deal of work, like actual labor work, uh, which he does working in uh, domestic labor a great deal of the time, and in the assemblage of wife. I just want to mention that again. Such oh, a good so concept. Good. Yeah. Such a good political concept. Uh, and the book is is aware of those connections, I think. And it's like, how do this, how does Hazel Brown become this? 
And it is through this process, which is really very much grounded in actual experiences, actual experiences of, you know, poverty, of de dehumanizing labor or, or degrading labor. And it, what does all that lead to? And at the end of the day, Hazel Brown creates a great deal of interesting work, um, even in just her reflections throughout the book. So very throughout and even through some of my criticism before, there's something really interesting about what the book does. And the more I think about the book as being aware of, of the various interconnectednesses that it does, the more interesting it becomes to me. I think I'm liking more about this book the more I talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, and that's and I think that's a, this is the kind of book that like requires that, I think. That um, Absolutely. You know, there's all these like little fragments and um you know, just sort of like wandering thoughts that like you could just I think pick up you know, her looking at a Corbet painting and think about that for a while and, like, not <laughs> think about anything else in the book, you know? <laughs> um, or, like, she'll mention a critic and you're like, oh, I better, I should write that down. I should read that, you know? Like, <laughs> it's one of those books that is, like, very much about, like, a writer who's in love with reading and writing and, like, looking and, like, you know... I gather we're all people who like to do that too. And, you know, it's really fun to read a book that um, gives you all these little tidbits <laughs> to yeah, chew on. From you two, know? People have two podcasts about reading and art. Yeah. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Not one, uh, uh, two podcasts. Um, uh, yeah, definitely. And yes. then to tie back really briefly into, uh, you know, Paris as a, um, a, both romanticized place and a riotous place, I guess. Um, it was really interesting when she talked about Baudelaire's um, city under Houseman. And yes. Yeah, right? I really liked that. Um, and how sort of the uh, the way, you know, the way you be are a dandy or a flanner is, you know, you're wandering around alleys and, um, you know, sort of, going into galleries and salons and bars and suddenly the city is transformed into a grid and all the commons are you know now um commodified you know like all of the spaces become markets and and this was i guess it was the same same time um by 1857 that was when fleur de uh fleur de mal was published and at the same time as baudelaire's trial so i i i think that's like a thing that she does throughout the book that i really appreciate is like the historical grounding and material yeah. grounding yeah and, and something that's really interesting and i kept thinking about but she doesn't get into it because baudelaire is already dead by that point but shortly <laughs> after in that hosmanian paris we have the incredible paris commune and yes uh one of the things that i Whenever I, when I studied the commune, my my professor really drew attention to it, and I think he had a brilliant point over it. That Corbet, uh, the same Corbet who, who painted Baudelaire, who erased uh, Jean Duval, and the the book uh, this book argues for some of the reasons of why, in what ways, and how uh, did that happen? Uh, that same Corbet, he uh, was one of the main 
people pushing for the destruction of the Vandome column, which is a massive column in Paris, you know, glorifying Napoleon and whatnot. And uh, they brought it down. So it was a really mm-hmm. well photographed event. Uh, the Paris Commune, I think, is the, one of the first major photographed events, uh, historical events. So plenty of pictures of that. Um, and uh, unfortunately, they built it up again. Um, but uh, they, <laughs> what that a waste. one they destroyed. Yeah. And they did uh, melt down that Napoleonic statue, uh, as they should have. Uh, so this, this thing about... I, I talked about, about, about Paris and, and whatnot, but it's still significant how, how Paris is, is was and in a way still is a battle where, where this aesthetics and the, the artistic and the culture in that sense are really interconnected in these conflicts and, and battles. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, we to, in terms of aesthetics, uh, we can think about the gilets jaunes, the, the yellow vests, how that is, a, yeah. that is so distinctive visually and, and more, I think quite uh, unique in, in the sense of like the visual contrast that it created in, in, in comparison to other protest movements, like it, it was it was a protest movement with a clear visual identity um, mm-hmm. and, and uh, how that how those um, that history of of protest and this aesthetic significance is still present in conflicts in Paris today. So uh, yeah. that's something to mention. And I, I always enjoy talking about the destruction of the Van Dome column. Um, it's a massive <laughs> fucking enterprise and potential waste of resources, but symbolically one of the most important things that uh, the the Paris Commune did. So you know, it's uh, still worth it. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's too bad that that always filled me with a little bit of sadness because uh, there was also a yellow fest Dutch movement, which totally didn't have any leftist idealist behind it. It was oh, no. mostly um, it was then immediately hijacked by. During the COVID, mainly, well, a little bit before the COVID era, but uh, then during the COVID era, uh, was hijacked by anti five G people, uh, oh, people who believe that COVID came through. Yeah, an idea, and uh, like, I don't know. It was like, once again, it's not, it's not important because nobody cares for Netherlands, and nor should you. But it's um, it's it is interesting in a political scientific perspective, namely that there is um, there's no real. Dutch left identity, as in it's very fragmentized, it's very sh- shattered, and like there's a gr- there's a green leftist green movement sort of kinda, but uh, and then there's the Labour Party who has apparently violently capitulated to like the centre left again, and like well anyway, and so forth and so on, and so it's <laughs> uh, the aestheticism was then just filtrated through the lack of leftist uh, structure, mm-hmm. and then w- was left up for grabs by conspiracy theorists. So right. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, good, good, good sense of uh, uh, aestheticism is good. Or like having a, a capability for that is good. It is just, once again, as we have said during the Velvet Goldbind episode so many times, like uh, aestheticism without anything behind it, it leads to fascism. And like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to pull the Benjamin quote again. Yeah. yeah. Sorry for the Dutch politics, which is not interesting. But no, I do it think, is uh, interesting. I don't know <laughs> yeah. anything about Dutch politics. Nor should you. It's not well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's true. Um, if you, yeah, if you have a symbol, um, that's you know part of your movement. You have to really guard it, or um, 
you know, as soon as you kind of like, I guess, like stop paying attention to it, this vacuum forms and someone, someone very bad will come in and take it from you. You know, it happens yeah. all the time. And it's just, yeah, it was just a copy paste it, but then, well, it shows what happens if you don't have any robust ideas, let alone mm-hmm. theory resting behind your ideas. Then you'll always cascade into, like, you know, that kind of territory. Yeah. Or at least always yeah. be susceptible to that. And that's that's very dangerous, I think. That's, uh, well, anyway, that's, <laughs> that's fading too far from the book, but I do think that's very interesting. <laughs> so, gonna keep, keep it I, got the, I got the Benjamin quote, okay, which is the literal end <laughs> of uh, the, the, the work of art in the age of mechanical rep- reproduction. And the very end is, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the the final paragraph uh, if you both will allow me. Yeah. yeah yes. Uh, fiat ars periat mundus says fascism, and as Marinetti admits, expects war to supply the artistic gratification of a sense perception that has been changed by technology. This is evidently the consummation of l'art pour l'art, mankind, which in Homer's time was an object of contemplation for the Olympian gods, now is one for itself. Its self-alienation has reached such a degree that it can experience its own destruction as an aesthetic pleasure of the first order. This is the situation of politics which fascism is rendering aesthetic. Communism responds by politicizing art. Yeah, that's. I uh, was just like listening to someone else talk about um, uh, Benjamin being, uh, and <laughs> was being such an asshole about uh, Benjamin's communist qualities, and I was like, oh Christ, never mind then. And I was like. Not, not necessarily, you don't have to be a communist. Like, I will listen to you if you have anything interesting to say. Um, even because I think that there, there's some importance to that, to listening to people who disagree with you. This sentiment has been used to justify a lot of bad shit. But and yes. I'm not coming from that, from that angle. I'm just saying that, like, you know, if someone mm-hmm. puts a lot of thought and reason into the things that they do, I think uh, they are still worth learning from. Not in this kumbaya kind of way, but more as in no thy enemy kind of type of way. Um, or like at least see the structures that are being applied within their rhetoric as very useful, I think. Uh, just a little to get to know me, I guess, a shrug. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny that you, uh, or that, that quote is very poignant, and it, there's always this deep condescending element towards um, main, mainly Soviet art, but larger uh, communist art as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. like... I, I don't know if if, if you as a, like as a capitalist or as a Western European or American has anything have any foot uh, any footing any um, ground to stand on from coming from that this hyper commodification like please look at your mm-hmm. own uh, tend to your own garden before you look at yeah. others I would humbly <laughs> suggest but that, that's not a hint there In, reinsert the Melody Monroe paradigm uh, so, yeah so yeah. yeah. Any closing thoughts, I would say, if that's all right with you guys? Yeah, I feel like that's a good spot to close on. Yeah, we've this this was a slightly feverish episode and one which uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's as if we all woke up thinking we wrote the works of Baudelaire (laughs) or the works of Benjamin. Yeah, why not? Or or Ballard or Baudrillard or Or Bataille. (laughs) <laughs> all the bees all, all right. the bees yep. that's the last time I'll share something that's <laughs> no I like I like it <laughs> I've done the so. same with Bataille and Baudrillard as, yeah. a, as a closing oh. thought I, yes. I would uh, say that um, 
as as an exercise in vulnerability. It's uh, I remember being really young, and since we talked about Don Quixote, I got to talk about this. Um, I always thought that that uh, it was a comedy because it was just this old idiot like running at a windmill, and my mom didn't have the heart to tell me that it was a tragedy. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> so I was like, yeah, it's the, tell me about the funny funny old man that like is a knight or whatever, and uh, like anyway. Uh, I talk a lot about media literacy, but then again, I was a child, so fuck me. Um, it's, uh, yeah, anyway, that's, I thought that was uh, reminding me uh, of uh, that one, since we talked about Don Quixote so much. I guess closing thought, I'll share a funny um, personal story about reading this book. Um, I took the day off from work last Friday and just had this idea that I would go to a coffee shop and get like a really nice cup of coffee and just sit there and enjoy this book, um, which I think is a good way to, to read this book. Um, and on my way, someone in South Philly was getting, it looked like someone had just sort of like um, very abruptly quit a PhD program because <laughs> it was just like uh, <laughs> Borges and Brecht and like, you know, all Ooh. these books about subjectivity. And I was like, wow, just like three cardboard boxes of books. But whoa, um, yeah. But so I picked up Labyrinths by Borges and, you know, brought it with me to the coffee shop and put it in my bag. And having no idea that one of the short stories in this book in in Labyrinths uh was an inspiration for the Baudelaire fractal. Um, and I made a joke that day that I was like on Twitter, I was like, Oh, you know, I found all these books. I went to a coffee shop. I'm walking around just like a budget flanus. And it just was <laughs> like, it just somehow this uncanny thing happened, um, which I love because I feel like that's what this book is so much about, like, you know, meandering and, um, accidental encounters and things like that. So, yeah. <laughs> All that was left was for the three of us to start wandering our cities. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess I did wander Philadelphia. Yeah, that you, day, you won so that yes. one. <laughs> the only thing that I remember about Philadelphia is that you had that um, robot that was a hitchhiking oh experiment. God, yes. <laughs> and, you know, and from Canada, it made it from like Halifax to Vancouver. And uh, in in North America, it was like from Vermont, and then got to Philly and got like stabbed. Yeah, we killed them. We killed them. <laughs> That's a, what we're known for. Is yeah. I'll put a Troy Aikman jersey on him, and it was yeah, done. we're a grimy, mean city, and I love I love it dearly. Yeah. <laughs> and, some people were lamenting it, but everyone from Philly was like, "Yep, that's Philly. Yep, that's what that's, we do." That's, that's... Yeah. Um, <laughs> Santa, I, there was some Eagles game where Santa Claus came um, out on the field, like, and people were annoyed because they wanted the game to start, and so they started chucking snowballs filled with things like batteries in them at Jesus. Santa. And like people, it's bragging rights here. It's like, oh yeah, we throw snowball, we throw batteries at Santa Claus here. <laughs> Don't send your stupid robot into town. <laughs> <laughs> we'll I, kill I, it I respect the sentiment of like I'm here to do this thing I don't want more of this but yeah. watch the fucking thing yeah um. <laughs> at Santa get out of here 
Right, that's that's the best. Uh, as uh, as a non Christian, that's a great closing thought for me personally. I'm going to capitalize on that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, my closing thought for this book is that, like, yeah, great things can come from being weird little guys, and uh, <laughs> we need to be more so. So uh, fuck shit up, fuck hard up, fuck fuck it all up, and fuck. That's the book's message. Yes. <laughs> Trying to trying to keep a straight face while saying all that. <laughs> so thank everybody for listening. Uh, yeah, no, you made it to the end. Thank you so much, Kate. Uh, <laughs> what what do you have to plug? Yeah. Oh well. Um. So my you can find me on Twitter. Um. My podcast is Fangs for the Memories, which is a Buffy the Vampire Slayer rewatch podcast with a leftist bent. Um. And we're at Fang's podcast. We also do horror um, because I think we were both getting tired of having guests on who don't know anything about Buffy. (laughs) And we wanted to offer some more um, opportunities for people. (laughs) Um, And then my personal Twitter is at Kate Terry. It's K-A-Y-T-E-T-E-R-R-Y. And then you can see like my art and my um, daily uh, not PG rated musings. Oh yeah. Some yeah. of those are it really be, good. It will be <laughs> in the description. Don't worry. Nice. <laughs> yeah, no, the, I'll, I'll draw attention to the fungus ones. Those are oh, great. Oh God. What a day. What a, what a weekend that was. <laughs> my fungus weekend. I'm on board. <laughs> nice. Oh, <yeah. laughs> And I'll finish watching Last of Us all. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, go, go, go follow Kate. Go, go listen to her podcast. Witness uh, her being a weird little stuff. guy. Yes. yes. Yeah. Go and support weird little guyism. Yes, I'm taking advantage of weird little guyism every day. <laughs> As we all should. That's, if, yes. that's, if there's anything that you can come out of this episode with is be a weird little guy in whatever mm-hmm. way you want. Yeah. Yes. Being a weird little guy is everything. It is everything. It is everything. Yeah. We connect all the different <laughs> quotes we, we create and and people give us during our various <laughs> guest episodes into one. It'll be the mega <laughs> quote. The, the monolith that is the HBM LP experience. Exactly. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And yeah. Th- thank you so much, soon. everyone. See you very soon. Thanks again. <laughs>